Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. My father always wrote me off as, as a dreamer, never to be seen in, you know, one of those. And um, so he didn't have much hope for me. My mother was always comparing me to her friend's sons who were doing well. So I had a bad time. <laughs> in this episode, I speak with architect Frank Gehry in the first of several conversations we recorded together. Frank Gehry cares deeply about Los Angeles. Over the almost 70 years that he's lived and worked here, he's changed and elevated the architectural profile of the city as perhaps only Frank Lloyd Wright or Richard Neutra before him. Today, we'll explore Frank's earliest years in the city, his architectural training, friendship with artists, and breakthrough projects. In upcoming episodes, we'll discuss the first years of his independent architectural practice up to the design and construction of his celebrated house, the so-called Gary House, his mature period, including his work for L.A.'s Museum of Contemporary Art and the L.A. Philharmonic's Hollywood Bowl, his late heroic years, my term, not his, with the construction of Disney Hall, and his grand vision to revitalize the L.A. River. All along the way, we'll hear Frank's uncompromising view of this history, delivered in his own words, as only Frank can. What follows is an edited version of a longer conversation we had over lunch in his studio. Frank, thanks so much for your time and your interest in this podcast project. So today I want to talk to you about your early L.A. experiences and how it was that you came to establish your architecture studio and what effect L.A. had on your studio practice, if any. You were born in Toronto and you came to L.A., I think, in 1947, right. at age about 18. 17, right? 18, so, something like that. Yeah. Tell us what brought you to L.A. and what were your first impressions of the city? Well, um, I, I lived in Toronto. My father was a salesman, quasi-business, but he wasn't very successful. He had bad times, and he had a, a serious heart attack at 49 years old. In Toronto. Toronto, yeah. And he lost whatever he had, he lost financially, and he was kind of broke. And uh, I didn't know this as that was going on. I didn't know the magnitude of it completely. But you sensed some anxiety yeah. in the family. He was struggling, I knew that. But uh, his brother, his older brother, was moving his family to L.A. from Detroit. And it was a time where when people got sick, they bring them to softer climate. So Big Brother said, I'm going to take care of you. Come out, come with me to California, and you'll feel better, which he did. And we were all excited. He was driving cross-country, sent postcards and things. He, he came out before you came out? Yeah, yeah. and he rented an apartment and he didn't make it look sound flowery, but, you know, it was just, okay, this is what we're doing. My mother and sister came out earlier. I think I was finishing my schoolwork, my year, and I had to stay there to finish it. So I lived at my grandmother's house. I got on train and came to L.A., picked me up at Union Station, the blaring sun. I mean, everything was just like, wow. <laughs> and where was the family living then? 
what was the first apartment that well, you lived so in? Well, so then he took me to the apartment. It was at what was then called Ninth Street. I think they've changed the name of the street, but it was corner Burlington and Ninth. The building's still there. It was an old apartment building, probably the 20s, with uh, wrought iron elevator cages mm, and wow. things like that. Right. But it was run down. It was not wasn't spiffy. It was pretty over the hill, as we say. Did your father have a job then, or was he still looking uh, for one? He did get a job as a truck driver with a soda pop company delivering. Um, no, here's a guy with a heart attack delivering cases Doesn't of soda pop. Good, so yeah. it didn't make sense to me, but that's the job he got. The apartment was two rooms, I guess, the size of this one. Yeah, this library, which must be 60 by 30. Yeah, so there were two rooms like this with big window on one side and a little kitchen, one bathroom. And uh, there were sliding doors between the rooms so you could open it all up. So one was a living room, one was a bedroom. And they had the old pull-down wall beds. Oh, yeah, Murphy beds. That you pull down. And so there was one of those in each room. So parents stayed in one one of those. And the other one I got and my kid sister got the couch. And it was tight. Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> Tight it. quarters. Um, my mother got a job at the Broadway Hollywood in the candy department. Now, here's a lady that was belonged to Hadassah, all those Jewish philanthropic organizations. I mean, they didn't have much money, but that was her kind of thing in Toronto. And she had always wanted to go to law school, but her father sent her brother to law school, who then didn't use what he learned. She would have been a lawyer. He, he didn't. And so she started going to night school at L.A. City College studying law. She hadn't even completed her high school, so she had to do all of that. And that was downtown? Did she get from your apartment to the school by bus? Yeah, that was Alvarado. So it was one, it, her, it was Vermont. So oh, you right. took 9th Street to Vermont right. straight up. Right. And I did the same. I went, yeah, to, you went to LA City College too. I went to LA City yeah. too. At night or was it during the yeah, day? Yeah, I went at night. Yeah. Because I worked during, I was a truck driver also. I got a job working for a relative in a, in the San Fernando Valley for a furniture, she had a furniture company and we would, he was selling um, kitchen furniture, like tables and chairs and chrome that they used to make out of chrome back in those days with uh, upholstered seats. And he would make um, breakfast nooks that you had to fit into the wall. And so I was delivering those. But sometime not long after that, you got into USC. And I remember you saying to me once that you can't imagine how your parents could afford sending you to USC. <laughs> Did you ever figure that out? They didn't. <laughs> they didn't send you. You you went on fellowship? I was a truck driver. I was going to night school. I had my cousin, who was the uh, son of the brother that brought my father out. And they had money, so he had a convertible, and he joined a fraternity at SC, and he was a, like a college boy at those days with the Bobby Soxers and the... He always included me in all his stuff, even though we didn't have any money to do it. Was he a couple of years older? Three, maybe three years. 
He's still alive. So somehow I, they made it possible for you to get to, to no, go through. I USC started. Or? I I did when I was at LA City College. I was trying to figure out who what I wanted to be, and I took classes in all kinds of things. I mean, but two classes I took. One in there was an architect teaching, and it was to do kitchen cabinets or how to draw that stuff. And for some reason, because I was doing that, I was installing stuff like that, I took that class. And that architect uh, took a liking to me and got me through, you know, he was very positive about what I was doing. I took a class in perspective. And why I did that, I don't know. And I got an F. It's not not (laughs) promising (laughs) for your career. And... And since I'd never had an F before in my life, that really got me angry. So I took the class again, and I got an A, and then I felt better. (laughs) Anyway, as a truck driver, and as having a cousin at USC, he would always drag me down there. So I took a a class in ceramics. Yeah, with Glenn Lukens. Glenn, yeah. The first year I was doing just ceramics, the second I stayed on with him and as his assistant so I didn't have to pay tuition and at the end during that period he was building a house by Soriano yeah Raphael Soriano yeah was that the was Soriano the first architect you'd met that was a practicing architect some sense of the professional life of an architect probably did you get a sense of the practice of architecture or just that this was an architect did he take you to the studio or no I never went to I never went to a studio or anything I went to See the house under construction. Soriano was there. He had a black beret, black shirt, black everything. Broken nose. He's from the Isle of Rhodes. And he was telling the steel guys, put this here and put that here and put that here. And I guess Glenn saw the light in my eyes. I was enjoying it. And when we got back, he said, uh, you know, I got a hunch. I think we should enroll you in a class at in architecture, there's a night school class on Monday nights at SC. Sean, not Schoenberg, something Schoenberg. He was a architect with one of the big engineering firms in LA, was teaching the class. And um, so my first building that I did looked like Soriano. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, obviously that was, a, that was all you knew. Was USC at that time the likely place an architect would go for education? Yeah, it was the only it was the only architecture school. Yeah, I see. But this guy Arnold Schreier had worked for Frank Lloyd Wright, I think, or Lloyd Wright, maybe. Right. And did he did he introduce you to modernist architecture in Los Angeles? Because it was a it was the time to to see new things, new things being built all the time. And maybe Julius Schulman. Do I remember that? that he yeah, Julius, Julius was from? involved. Arnold was involved. Craig Elwood was involved. <laughs> Um, and by involved, you mean at USC or just in architecture? No, in my life. Oh, right. yeah. I think what happened is um, during that period, I met Arnold Schreier. He was working at Lloyd Wright's studio, and he would, uh, on weekends, go out looking at the houses by eminent architects in the city, and I used to go with him. And somehow he met Julius Schulman. The great photographer of modernist right. architecture, yeah. And would drag me along, and somehow we got invited to dinner to Julius's house, which was a Soriano house. Uh-huh. 
And somehow at those dinners, Craig Elwood and his then wife, an actress, Gloria Henry, would come. And uh, somehow we all became friends. <laughs> what did your parents think about your interest in architecture? They think, well, there's, there's a future there. Yeah. You'll make some money. Yeah. <laughs> He'll be My okay. father always wrote me off as, as a dreamer, never to be seen in you know, one of those. And um, so he didn't have much hope for me. My mother was always comparing me to her friend's sons who would, were doing well. So I, I had a bad time. <laughs> I never measured up. Although she took me to museums and took, took me to concerts. She's the one that got me into all of that back in Canada. Uh -huh. But you also even, we'll go back to Canada for, for a second, you also had the support of your grandfather and grandmother, right? Yes, and the grandfather was a hardware store, which I worked at with him, and so I got to cut glass and thread pipes and a lot of stuff that would later become Yeah, And he was, he was encouraging yeah. as a personality. Yeah. And he was—he read a lot, and mostly Talmud. They—they they always studied Talmud, and Talmud is about curiosity. That's—that's that's all they do. They just ask why. why they just keep why? asking why this happened, <laughs> and then they argue about the answers. <laughs> so back to USC and and these guys. What about Greg Walsh? Greg came along and and when I got into second year architecture. So first year in that night class was John Kelsey, who became Kelsey and Ladd, who did the Pasadena Museum. Oh, wow. John, I met him that night in that class. And he was one of the ones with me that got skipped into second year. And we stayed friends. He died recently, but I love that guy. But Greg Walsh was your peer. He was a fellow student. Second year, Greg was in... Greg was curious about buildings, so and he knew Arnold Schreier either through me or somehow, but they became friends. And we would search out every Schindler house, every Wright house, every everything, and drove people nuts. We'd knock on doors, all the things people do to me, and I can't stand it. Who had the car, you or Greg? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but we did go everywhere. I did meet Schindler and and could call him. He was great. And when I got into the regular class at SC, he would come and lecture. And, and he, he was a typical hippie. He had uh, sackcloth shirts. And I mean, he really fit the story. Uh, I was taken by him pretty much because it felt real. It felt human. It felt It didn't feel contrived somehow. It felt like... You know, you were putting two pieces of wood together. You were doing it. He was, he would draw, he had a piece of plywood and he had a T-square and a pencil. And he didn't use a triangle. He put the pencil on the edge of it. That's how he got his. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Did he talk about the profession, the nobility of the profession, no. the ambitions of the profession? <laughs> Nothing about that. Nothing about the ethos of the profession, no, the ethics no. of we the profession. No, no, we had some funny stories with, with his, you know, he... He had a thing that he had a thing with every woman of every house he built. R.N. was kind of a ladies' man. That was funny. But um, I met Lloyd Wright, who was not easy to talk to. He was always worried about his father. Bet. Huh? That was really, you could feel it. You yeah. Know? 
I'm sure. When I when Daddy was coming to town, boy, he just. <laughs> um, I met Lautner. I met I, the the people that were easy because uh, the school everybody was was sort of bitten by the Japanese wood architecture. Yeah. And, and as was Schindler. Yeah. But but the guys I would like uh there was a guy Bill Rudolph and there was um Gene Weston was the one that just died. And they were all acolytes of uh like Gordon Drake and and uh, Harold Hamilton Harris. And it was easy. You know, you could get the post and beam structure it's easy to draw it you could and there was beautiful you know you've seen, you've been in those mm-hmm. houses mm-hmm. i know any any philbin lives in one now right well one of your teachers at the at usc at the time along with carl straub was garrett ekbo garrett and then and, and greg greg ain yeah and both of them had leftist politics or had a sense of the profession as doing something other than making fine fancy houses yeah right there were several organizations one was called the Architectural Panel, and all the lefties belonged to that. And we'd meet every Friday night somewhere, and Greg Ain would come and talk, or Garrett would talk. or um, There was a big brouhaha about the baseball stadium. and Dodger Stadium, yeah. Dodger Stadium. You had to clear all this housing yeah. to make it, right? And Neutra's office was doing something, and a guy named Al Boki worked for Neutra. He's the guy that... Then went to Hawaii and came back and hired Charles Moore to do Sea Ranch. Oh, gosh. My Neutra story is a sad one. When I graduated, I wanted to go work for him because they were involved with social stuff, especially Boki and, and a lot of the people around. And um, Neutra's partner, who did the UCLA school, what's his name? Anyway. Did, did they offer you a job or you just wanted to? No. Have, you wanted them to? Uh, so I went for an interview with Richard himself. I took my thesis, and I I was married by then. I had a child. I can show the thesis project. Really? It's yeah. a building, or is it a... It was for Mexico. Oh, that's right. Baja. Baja, yeah. Right. And that was also housing. Yeah. So I went to meet Neutra, and he looked at, through it, and he was, you know, big guy, a plot of hair. He was very friendly. And he says... Ah, start Monday. I said, fine. And he got up to leave, and I said, Mr. Neuter, shouldn't we discuss um, the financial stuff? He said, oh, don't worry. They'll tell you how much you have to pay on Monday. You have to pay. Mm. (laughs) I didn't say anything, but I never went back. (laughs) So, But it was about that time that Victor Gruen Associates offered you a job. Is that right? Maybe a summer Edgardo job? Contini was in my fourth year. So I just, out of Straub, fourth year, Edgardo's teaching. He's an engineer. He was Victor's partner, became Victor's partner. And they were doing social housing. And I did a project for something, but it was a riff on the, the house, the Neutra Schindler house uh-huh. with the concrete panels. Right, I, I took that idea and built something with it and Contini thought it was brilliant and blah 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 and so they hired me for the summer and then when I graduated I went to work there 
but you get drafted into the Army. It's like 1955. So with you with Victor Gruen for a year or two before you got drafted, between USC and drafting? No, right away. It, what happened is I was very interested in flying. And when I was a truck driver, I had a cousin who had a Waco airplane, and I used to go out on weekends and fly with him, biplane. And then on weekends, I got made extra money by washing people's planes. Do you know Van, there were so many Van people Ice. with planes that had a need to have them washed? Van Nuys Airport. Well, oh. there were movie stars. was famous ones. I forget. <laughs> forget yeah. it. Yeah. So when I got into SC, I joined Air ROTC. Because in high school in Canada, I was in Air ROTC. And I had a fantasy about flying. I figured if you have to go in the Army anyway, because that time everybody had to go. Uh, that I wanted to go in the Air Force. So I was in Air ROTC from second year, second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year, four years. And I did all the tests and I passed all the things and I was marched and wore the uniform and polished the brass and did everything for those years. And three months before graduation, the uh, colonel or whatever he was, called me in and said, Frank, there's been a terrible mistake made. You never were accepted into the ARROTC. Oh. It was because of a knee or yeah. there was some problem, right? Because I had a knee. And I was 4F in the Army, but the ARROTC, they saw it. They went along with it. You know. You'd be sitting down on an airplane anyway. Yeah, so uh, he told me that three months before graduation, which meant I was back into the draft. And uh, I was 4F, but I had to go in. As soon as I was out of that, I had to go in for re-examination. I went for the examination. The doctor was crippled. And he looked at me and said, 4F. He said, look, I'm, they found something for me to do. They'll find something for you to do. And he goes, 1A, and that's it. Boom. So I got drafted. And you went to Fort Ord? Fort Ord. Did you have thoughts that you might end up in Korea? Well, it was at the end of the... It looked like it was over. But there were threats. You know, when you're in the Army, everybody's making up stories. and We're shipping out. We're shipping out. <laughs> anyway, after a day as the clerk, the captain came to me and said, what else can you do? <laughs> because I couldn't do it. Um so I ended up making signs for him. The signs were because they didn't, I'd finish the sign a day and I'd take him and he'd say, no, no, make it nicer. You can take a week to do this if you want, or even two weeks. So I started doing these flamboyant, Baroque looking signs and I was having fun. At the same time, they were, they were getting ready to go on maneuvers to uh, test a new army model, which was breaking up the different, the cavalry, the infantry, the tanks, the things into sections and making one army unit that had one of each in it. So it was a compact fighting unit that was self-sufficient. They needed somebody to make these charts. And so I made signs, charts in their mind. Boom. Same thing. So I'm the chart guy now. So it's top secret. <laughs> the general looks at me. 
He said, you, have you got any clearances? I said, no. He said, well, you're going to need top secret clearance. What's your past like? Have you got any communist leanings or any, I forget, stuff like that, you know? And I said, no, I'm, I'm clear. I mean, I didn't tell him about all the lefty organizations I was in. Uh, right hand up, he swore me in. I'm now top secret. Puts me in a barracks all by myself. A barracks is from, from here to the other side and twice this width. And I was sitting at a table all by myself. <laughs> and then they brought a guy from somewhere else who was from France, but he was living in the U.S. He was, he was American. He got drafted. So he, he spoke French. And we'd make these charts of uh, line companies, how many enlisted men and how many tanks. And, and, we'd, and they were top secret charts. And then they asked us, they asked me if I could uh, help them. They needed a, some field desks and equipment that went in the field on maneuvers and they gave me a list of stuff is there anything you could do to help us with to this? design them design them so i designed everything and i designed a field latrine <laughs> i could draw it for you it was it was like a little square that you sat on the back had two pipes that went up with canvas and then a little canvas it looked like a frank lloyd wright thing <laughs> and i had it going both ways so there were two latrines with this thing in between back to back back to back and i made models for them and they loved it i made desks and they'd never seen shit like this you know so did they they put it to use i mean was it put i it think practice? so i think so but into production. I, the, I think life went faster than that so while I was in the infantry thing, when I would go to, um, on these 20 mile hikes, my leg would swell. And it wasn't anything I'd experienced before because it never happened before. And so I went, I used to go to the infirmary or whatever you, whatever you call it. And the, the doctor for legs, what do they call them? <laughs> Some, whatever it is, you know the word, but he said, look, it's, what's happening is those boots, when you tie them up, are... Cutting the circulation off? Are cutting, he said, so that's what's making it swell. And he said, so I'm going to give you a slip that you shouldn't wear boots. <laughs> and I took it back to the company. I didn't know what that meant. I took it back to the company commander. He looked at it. He, this guy was really anti-Semite. He said, you fucking Jews, you always get out of everything. You couldn't do KP or guard duty without boots. <laughs> <laughs> so when I got to Atlanta and I was in top secret drawings, the leg was still acting up a little. So I went to the infirmary a couple of times and I had a, a, a heating pad, the guy would do. The doctor in charge, the captain, was from Montgomery, Alabama. He was just getting ready to go out of the army. And he was getting ready to build himself a clinic in Montgomery, Alabama. I'm an architect, so he starts asking me about this clinic and how he should do it. And, you know, I'm easygoing, so I start designing the thing with him. And it got to where he would call me to come for the heat treatment so we could work together. <laughs> Which is fine. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was a couple hours uh, 
every other day or something. But then I got a call from the general. And he says, comes to the office, and the general, he must have been gay. He had uh, starched fatigues. I've never seen that before. He was a, real, he was a West Pointer, just starched, and he was just... He was really like a guy that's been looking in a mirror all day long. And he said, uh, Private Gary, he says, I'm really proud of you, young man. I said, thank you, sir. What did I do? <laughs> he said, well, you've had problems with your leg and you haven't been complaining. And he said, and we're about to go on maneuvers in the south in Louisiana where you're going to have trouble. And I said, no, no, I can do it. He says, look, captain over there at the infirmary told me that you're not a complainer, but he said, don't take that guy on maneuvers. On maneuvers. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't ask him to do it or anything. <laughs> at the same time, I'd met Al Trevino at the PX or something. Al Trevino was a Harvard graduate and landscape architect who then went to work with Irvine. And he, he's still a friend. He's still around. And Al said he's doing the general's gardens for him at his house. They're getting ready to do a big uh, day room remodeling thing for Third Army, and they need an architect. He said they, they think they need decorators, but they really need... He said, uh, would you be interested? I said, sure, but I, you know, I didn't... Anyway, long story short, Al put in a request for me to go up there. I did go up. I met the general. I did talk to him. I did... He said, well, you're not a decorator. I need a decorator. And I said, well, I can do what you want. And so I made a model. I went home, made a model of a, of a day room, worked all night over a weekend and showed it to him. And, and he said, okay. And then he put in the request for me, just as this general was being told, and it, boom, it worked. And he signed the order and let me go up to Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> to do this day room, whatever it was called, yeah. lounge. And then kind. my first day, uh, we fall out in the morning with the sergeant telling us to pick up trash, assholes and elbows, they used to say. And that sergeant was none other than Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> <laughs> that can't be true. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> now, I didn't know... At that point, we didn't know who he was. And he didn't know who I was. Neither, I don't know if he knew who anybody was. He was a nice guy. He was getting ready because it was special services. So they, special services had all the country western singers. Uh, Curtis Gordon, I think his name was, and I forget their names. We're all in this group, and we were all falling out together and picking up trash. And some of them became really f famous. You, you were certainly very close to Leonard Nimoy much later in life. Did you yeah, well, stay in to, touch from yeah, that point I got on? to know him. Well, you might have even been there. I, Annie Feldman had one of those things, and she, she honored me. Right, 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 the hammer. And I got a little, had a little bit too much to drink, and I got up and I said, Sergeant Nimoy, would you please stand? <laughs> and there he was, and he stood up, and I saluted him. <laughs> Poor guy. So this is about three years after college? I mean, is, uh, are you about 25 or so? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And a young um, married man and a young father? Yeah, father. 
And, and at we, some point you get out of the Army and you come back to we LA? We had another child while I was in the Army. At, uh, we stayed in Atlanta, and I had some really uh, amazing experiences. We were in the, in the um, military housing. They were special for, for the enlisted personnel and, and other staff. It was at East Point, Georgia, so it's just out, slightly out of town. We'd get, we got uh, flyers put on our door, Attorney General Griffin saying, beware of your women, the black folk are after them. It was a whole paragraph, and it was, it was uh, very powerfully written. It wasn't folksy like I'm making it. Yeah. I freaked out. At least I had the smarts to call from payphone. I called the NAACP, and I got a Mr. Calhoun. And it's the very Calhoun that then became head of the NAACP. Mr. Calhoun said, don't give me your name and your telephone number. This line is bugged. He said, uh, if you're up for it, he says, take that piece of paper to the uh, Ralph McGill at the Atlanta Constitution. The newspaper. And, and give it to him which I did. The next day I called Ralph McGill. And you were still in the Army? Yeah. And I went, and he was very sweet. McGill was was um, not a Southern racist. He was a good guy. And uh, he published it on the op-ed piece, front page of the op-ed, in big letters. <laughs> Was that ever traced back to you? No. Yeah. But you figured your days were numbered in the United States Army. <laughs> no, I wasn't worried about it. It was just uh, Atlanta was rough. This was two years after the Supreme Court decision, so it was 56. Um, there was a black kid in my in special services who was a concert pianist from Oberlin, and he was afraid to go into town. He wanted to go to the library, so I used to drive him in and stay with him while he was in the library. You had to use separate washrooms. They made it, you know. Even though it was an uh, integrated service. I mean, Truman integrated the service in Yeah, but outside the service. Oh, I see. So yeah. if you went to the department store right, or, right, or right. restaurants, it was all segregated. So how long did you stay in the Army? Uh, 21 you, months. All right. Did you come back to L.A. or did no, you go they on gave to me a, they gave me an early, they give you, at that time, they'd give you a three-month early discharge if you go back to school. Yeah. Oh, that's, and, that's, and how so, you, that's one and, of the motivations for going to Harvard? And that's why I went to Harvard. Ekbo and, and Simon Eisner were the planning guys. They knew my politics and everything. They knew I didn't want to do rich guy houses, so they said, you should be in city planning. City planning was run by Reg Isaacs at that time. Uh, and so I applied, got accepted to city planning. Which you th you misunderstood. You thought it was going to be urban design more. Well, I thought, yeah, I thought that you. I thought it was flexible. <laughs> and so I ended up in classes with John Goss and Otto Eckstein, and uh, not bad. I'm not complaining. I mean, after I got there. I, had, I did have a class with John Goss that Teddy Kennedy and the Aga Khan were in, but it was 200 people and we never got to meet each other. <laughs> uh, 
But they sometimes, at some point, you figured out or they figured out you were the, the wrong guy in the wrong place. I figured out. What happened is we were doing a master plan for Worcester. Worcester Mass. Mass in the planning. A master plan to me was, because I'd worked at Gruen, was like he was doing for Fort Worth, was to lay out the streets and traffic and all that stuff. Master plan for my class was an economic planning structure of the city, you know, I forget what it was, but it was nothing that wasn't I, designing anything. Wasn't designing yeah. anything. And I started the presentation of this master plan for Worcester and Charles Elliott the third stopped me and said, Mr. Gary, this has nothing to do with the class I gave. Please sit down. <laughs> and this is just weeks into yeah, the term. it was well, like it was November. Oh right, yeah. And I was I was so angry. So I waited for him. Uh, class is over. I saw him go up into his he, his uh, office was at Robinson Hall. It was like a ship's ladder and a door at the bottom. It looked like you were going to the captain's. I knocked on the door. Yes, I opened the door. There's Charles Lawton standing at the top of the steps looking at me, and I start screaming at him. You know, you can't do this to somebody. This is outrageous to embarrass me in front of Cert, to make me feel like nothing. I, I, I must, I unloaded. By the time I was finished, there was a crowd around me, and I told him to go fuck himself, and I slammed the door, <laughs> and I walked out. <laughs> I then went to see Cert and told him, look, probably my own fault. I got in the wrong pew. Can you transfer me to urban design? He said, uh, you will have to apply again. I said, you know, I'm married. I have kids. He said, I'm sorry. I can't help you. Can you imagine that? It was cold-blooded. They were really cold-blooded. So... The only good thing is that Charles Lawton's assistant, Peter Nash, who was the classicist, took me out for a drink. And he said, look, what you did was perfectly fine. He said, that guy was out of line doing that to a student. And he said, he said I apologize for him. And Peter helped me get a, a range a special card that I could go take any class I wanted, but no credit. Well, it was while you were there that uh, Pereira and Luckman, the L.A. firm, reached out to you. Is that right? To get you to get yes, this, Pereira so, had been your thesis advisor, maybe? Pereira and I were friends because he was my thesis advisor. And I got paid for doing the Mexican project. He, he thought that was... Your, your, your thesis project, your yeah, Baja project. We got a stipend from the Mexican government to do the work. I mean, it wasn't a lot of money, but... Bill Pereira was very impressed with that. Yeah. Um, and he was doing the he got his firm got the got the project for the L.A. International Airport about that time. Yeah. I mean, do they do they hire you for that job, or they want to hire you for that job? Y yes. Um, what happened is one of the planners in the office, Jack Bevash. I don't know if he's around anymore, but uh, came back to the Urban Design Conference and took me aside and said. Bill Pereira would like you to come back if you're coming back to L.A. to work in the office with him and be close to him, working with him. It's it's a big opportunity. And 
So I said, God, that's great. Because I had been told by the Gruen guys, not by the partners, but by one of the, a Swiss guy that was in charge of the planning department, that there was no work for me at the Gruen office. It turned out he was trying to keep me out because I was talented and he didn't want I guess that's why, but... Because you actually do go back to Gruen. Well, what happened is I I go to Pereira and start working with Bill. And the first thing he asked me to do is, he says, the hearse are giving up the castle. We're going to turn it into a public venue. And I'm going up to have dinner with the hearse, and I'd like you to come with me. And I looked at him and said, no way. <laughs> <laughs> So I said, please, I can't work on that one. So he put me on the airport. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the, what part of the airport were you working on? Just one terminal or another terminal? It wasn't no, the, they were the they were laying, they laid out the runways and all that stuff. They were doing the buildings, and they needed uh, those number towers. Right, There's yeah. a number. Yeah. So I had, I was given that to design. All right. The ones I designed aren't the ones they built, but. I had mine were lit up and everything. But just get this straight. So now you're out of the Army. You've been to Harvard. Now you're coming back. And this is about 57 or so. Yeah. And for the first time in three or four years, you're back in Los Angeles. Right. And Los Angeles must have been late 50s post-war booming like crazy. It was, yeah. And and Pereira's office was booming. And... um, But were you long in that office before Gruen comes? I fit... I didn't fit Pereira's office. I fit him. If it was just Bill and me, I, we would have had a great time. The rest of the office was corporate. They And what they did is they had a little theater set up, like a theater. You'd pull the curtains and open, and there'd be the project. And for each project, they'd do three schemes. And then the client would come in, and they'd give him a drink, and he'd sit there, and they'd open the first screen in there, and they had theatrical lighting and this was the project and then a team would explain it then boom and then they'd stop for a minute they'd put another one and then the client would pick the scheme and that i found that abhorrent and inevitably the client would pick the scheme they wanted the the architectural firm wanted the client to pick because they had orchestrated the whole thing yeah i don't know if they picked the one they wanted them to pick but that's the way they did it you just stay I, I i just didn't fit and at that time rudy called me bombfell and I loved Rudy, and we were really close from way from the beginning. I mean, he was, I just bonded with him. Called me, took me to lunch, and he said, why aren't you here at, at my office? And I said, well, Beta told me you had, uh, didn't need anybody. He said, I want you here tomorrow. <laughs> so I went. <laughs> you gave up Pereira? You gave oh. up that big project at the airport? And I just went. Because the culture was better at uh, Rudy. Yeah, I loved yeah, Rudy, yeah. And, Was that your model for your sort of first model for what a studio practice would be like? I suppose, yeah. Was it that everybody had this, had the principals had the offices and all the draftsmen and all the young designers all just in open spaces with big tables? Yeah. Working together and working all night, working all all day. Working all day and all night. But there were, you know, Contini was there. They were, the quality of the the architecture wasn't AAA great. And they were doing shopping centers, but they were doing social things too. And and 
Rudy was a great furniture designer. He was an art collector. You could talk to him about things that, I mean, I could talk about music and art. And, yeah. And, and um, he was Viennese. I mean, he was a cultured he, character. Yeah. And he drove me nuts about model making. He'd make everything perfect. He also drove a beautiful BMW or Mercedes. It was kind of qu- picture perfect blue. car. Blue yeah. car? Blue car. Yeah. But and it was there that you we got reunited with Greg Walsh? Ed no, Gruen? no, Greg, uh, I got him a job there. You got, uh-huh. I got Greg the job there. And with him, because they allowed you to do work outside the firm, you did a little uh, cabin in the west of Palm Springs somewhere, you and Greg, is that right? Uh, no, it's up in Idlewild. Yeah. Idlewild, yeah. yeah. It's still there, somebody... Somebody I know went to see it the other few weeks ago. Told me they went to see it. Was there tension in your mind then between the big firm practice and the independent? No, I was committed to the to the big firm. I thought this was it. I was in the holy land. I loved Contini. I loved Victor. I loved everybody. They treated me very well. I worked very hard. I ended up having almost my own office within the office. I could do a shopping center over a weekend, and I was really fast, and they loved it. And I could write good letters, and I understood the contracts. I understood the whole thing. I was I was in it. <laughs> I was what they needed. I was. But they, you were pulled away by well, the prospect of they, your own uh, projects. They. <laughs> it, this could be. I mean, I was at a time where my marriage was dicey. And I would, I was drinking a lot. So, and it was a time when people went out to lunch and had three martinis. It was everybody was doing it that time. And so, the days where you'd work four hours in the morning, or maybe you'd come in early and work till twelve or one. You take a two-hour lunch. You come back a little fuzzy, and three o'clock you'd be back in it, and you'd work till midnight. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the culture. But then a friend from Harvard, a guy named Mark Bias, or yes. Bias, Bias, invited you to go to France. Anita had lived through SC. Is your wife. Harvard. Uh, two kids. <laughs> and she always wanted to go to France. So it was her turn, right? And I was feeling like I should get out of Gruen, that it was, I wasn't going to make it there with the bureaucracy that they were setting up. I didn't fit. And so a year before I left, I gave notice. I went into Rudy and told him I'm buying tickets to go to Europe. And I know it's a year off and I don't I know this is stupid, but I love you and I can't help I gotta tell you. That's what I'm doing. And that's when we got to Steve's house and we were I used that money, the fee. Oh, the money from the house, I see, yeah. yeah. To buy the tickets yeah. for the trip. I bought four tickets on the Holland American line. And said to Rudy and all the partners that I was, you know, I'm, there's plenty of time. You know, I'm going to be here 100% till I leave. But tell me who you want me to train and how you want me to do this. And we got time to think it through so I not walk out the door. They never believed I was going to leave. 
So they didn't do anything. And so they kept piling more and more on me. Three months before I'm leaving, they call me in. There's this huge new project somewhere. Great project. I forget what it was. <laughs> you know, anybody give their anything to do it. And they assumed I would stay. And I said, no, I can't. And I stuck to my guns. And I'm, and right down to the end, they almost never quite believed it. Well, you were giving up the sure thing for something you didn't quite know what it might be. Right, right. So you make your way across on the boat and you make your way to France. And you're I get to France. Bias and his wife live in Moudon. They find me an apartment in their building. So they're up on the third floor. They find me an apartment in the deuxième sous-sol, the second lower basement. But it's at ground level. And it's ground level to a crash, a nursery. nursery school, yeah. And the kids joined. So it all worked out. And Bias was working there. I mean, he, he could give you some yes. work. He was working. He had started his own office by then. Or he was partners with somebody. And they were working. I mean, it was rather menial work you were given. It wasn't great, challenging no, work. No, it was, was uh, right? we were doing, uh, I think those drawings are in the stuff you guys are getting. It's uh, the master plan for Villa Cublay. That's the town that was uh, General de Gaulle's home. Mark Bias knew Roselle, who was the most famous French planner alive. He was planning cities. And a guy, young man worked for Roselle. His name was Ivan Yankovic, uh, Yugoslav, I guess. And Yankovic was making these cellules, they called them. So he, it was a sheet. I wonder if you can get them still, but there. He would take a building and and analyze it, and there would be pictures and stuff. But it was in two pages, and like the French do, it's fine print and stuff. <laughs> and so he was making those, and uh, he needed somebody to draw stuff, and so we were helping him. And then Ozell had these planning projects that he asked us to do drawings for. So that was night work. I got a job with a, a French architect, Ramon Day, whose offices are on the Champs-Élysées. Megan can say, 79 Avenue des Champs-Élysées. The building's still there, and, the, and Mimi Pinson is a dance thing. Did you ever, you know what I'm talking about? There's a place called Mimi Pinson, where in the old days, people would go and you'd get dancing lessons, but it was a place where you'd get a drink and the girls would dance with you. I don't know what happened after they danced with you. I don't think it was like that. I think it was kind of meet people, legit. Um, Did you think you might stay for a very long time or stay forever? Was it that kind of a move or you knew it was going to be temporary? I liked it. I didn't have anything to come back to. Um, so I was open, but they didn't pay much. You know, it was, uh, I, I had an incredible job. I was getting four francs an hour. That was less than a buck. It's not much, not for a family. And we would miss one meal a week. My wife and I would, so the kids could eat. Now, if Mark heard about it, he'd invite us down, but we didn't try not to do that, but cause he was struggling too. Um, we had enough money 
from my father and mother gave us a couple hundred dollars and somebody anyway we bought a volkswagen a little beetle and i would work four days a week and i would take off friday saturday and sunday of course with the kids and with mark and we he had a dishevel and we'd drive around and they'd pull all the seats out of the dishevel and we'd picnic and hmm. we went to and you saw medieval went to um, Pont de Garde and everything but the thing that he introduced me to that struck the chord was Autant and then from there the because history of architecture when I was SC was kind of nothing it was the you know we found the modernist we're going ahead with that stuff let's I'm not going to look at that anymore. And a lot of my friends who had the same experience, but when they got to Europe and saw Chart and and uh, and, and all these places, they went crazy yeah. and said they felt betrayed by their teachers. Why didn't you tell me? You know, you know, my first night off the boat in Paris, we went to Gregorian chants at uh, Notre Dame. I mean, it was magic. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, you know. Anyway. But then Victor Gruen comes over. So this goes on This back, goes huh? on for a, a year, not not quite a year. And uh, Ramonde, when everybody goes on vacation, August. Yeah, August, yep. I'm left alone in the office doing a competition for... A little town in the south of France, uh, Centre Po, P A U, in the Pyrenees. And it was a shopping center, office, housing thing. And he left the whole thing to me just mm -hmm. do it and send it in, which I did. He never saw it. We won the competition. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was happy. I decided to, I had to get back, go home. It was time, and uh, we took the last two months, I guess. I guess we took August, after I finished the competition, September, and traveled. But Gruen comes over, right? So at See? the end, the very end of all this, uh, I'm planning to go home. I get a call from Victor. He's going to be in Paris. Do I have time? any time to spend with him and I said yeah great I said my favorite place to go is um, Marley Loire the garden by Lenotre and I said the garden's still there and the architecture's not but it's a beautiful place to have a picnic and if you've never seen it let me take you there so he and his wife and I my wife didn't come with me got a picnic in Marley Loire, and we drank a lot and had a lot of fun talking about the old days. And he loved, I, you know, Marley. That's one of the places I always go when I go to France. And anytime I go, I always go there and I sit in the garden. And, yeah. But did he talk to you about coming back to LA? So then he didn't say a word until the end. He was staying at the Ritz, and he had a car, and so we drove back to the Ritz in his car, and we stopped. And this was goodbye, you know, and he said, you know, I'm retired from the office and I'm 
getting ready to open an office in Paris, and I'd like you to be my partner. I looked at him. I couldn't. In the context of what had happened in my life at that point, that was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and my mind went click. I couldn't do it. And I thanked him. And I said, I, I said, Victor, my, I, I don't know what to say, but I think the time has passed that I could, could accept that. You've had this sort of pattern of turning away from certain successes. Yeah, I do. To venturesome yeah. opportunities, of which this was one. So you come back to L.A., and with Greg, you opened your first practice? That was the, that No, was I yours? started myself. So it wasn't yet uh, Frank Gehry and no, Greg Walsh. No, what happened is this guy, Wesley Bilson, who was married to the K Jewelers right. heiress, his brother, Wesley, who I sail with once in a while, was married to Anita's best friend in high school. And so we, this, we knew them. Nita's my ex-wife. Right. And um, he introduced me to his brother, who was with the Kate Jewelers thing. And his brother wanted to, uh, he liked me, he somehow got excited about getting involved with architecture and decided he was going to get me this job with his father-in-law. Because his father-in-law had just come back from Japan. He was a Japophile, loved everything Japanese. And Wesley knew I knew that. And so they got me the job to do Kate Jewelers. And so that was my first job, and I did it myself. Greg wasn't involved at all. I did it at home. I got paid $2,000, I remember. And during that period, Wesley then said, why don't we find some land and build apartments? And I think I'm, I'm the date's wrong. Before I, I left, when I was in Europe, I got a call from Wesley or maybe it's before. It was before I went to Europe. Wesley and I looked at a little piece of land in Highland Avenue in Santa Monica and, and put the group together and bought it. And we were designing this apartment building with Ferry Dune Gafari and I forget who else that went to school with us. And Greg was not involved. And, uh, and so this was designed before I left for Europe. And it became more and more clear that he was going to get the money to build it as I was coming back. So I had that to come back to. That was sort of a, uh -huh. maybe that's why I felt comfortable yeah. quitting or something. But it was still speculation, right? You yeah, were going to develop yeah. the properties and sell them. Right. Wasn't, you weren't just getting paid a contract for designing no, them. No, yeah. So we designed it via mail <laughs> back and forth, I think. And, and then when I came back, we made it solid and we built it and, and rented it. And we were going to do a couple others that we never got got further than this one. So the, does Greg come into the picture then? Because he can, he's, he's with you at the Danziger studio in 64. Yeah. But the Danziger project looks, you know, by everything I've seen, to have been a signature departure from everything you'd done before. Oh, yeah. Principally, yeah. right? So what compelled that? Danziger, was he in a, partly him himself? He was a graphic designer and he had particular ideas about what he wanted for the house or well, in the studio? Well, uh, at that very point, Lou Kahn had just, right? Mm -hmm. And we were all looking at 
the master. The kind of simple massing that he has, right. the concrete think, planes of yeah, I walls. Think. And if you look at the the trajectory of studies we did, I, they're in, they're all in the files. I'm sure they got simpler and simpler. Lou, he's still alive, by the way. He's he lives in Pasadena or Altadena. Louis hired Fred Usher, who was a graphics architect, who worked with Eames and and had he was fairly well known by then in the in the local field. And Lou hired him to do the studio. And Fred brought it to me saying that he couldn't do it. And uh, then Greg joined me. I see. Something like that. Yeah. And with that job, you got a job also with, uh, well, you got introduced to the whole art- artistic circle around that time, right? through Ferris Gallery with Walter Hopps and Ed Keenholz and Ed Moses and Bob Earl and Billy Albanks and the whole gang. I mean, well, that it, happened because they were, they were came around and looked at the building. It wasn't that I got went after them or anything. While I was working at Gruen, I did get involved with contemporary art. You know, I mean, I was always interested. And so I used to go to La Cienega to the... Ferris Gallery? To all of them. All of them, yeah. And uh, saw a lot of the stuff that was going on. Ed Moses invited me to dinner and started talking to me about stuff and opened the door to Billy and... Larry Bell, and but it happened over time. It wasn't just like one day. Um, but you found a community that yeah, that I felt fed comfortable you. with them, yeah. and I was I was enjoying the way they worked because it felt right to me. It felt like the right way to build things. The the sort of literary way to architecture, which was all around me. I, I wasn't my wasn't interesting. And was it the kind of independence they seemed to have that that appealed to you as well? Right. Yeah, I mean, they didn't work for a corporation the way you were working for Victor Gruen Associates. Right. They were free. They were doing their own stuff, uh, and and it was hands on. It was very personal, and they liked what I was doing, which made it nice for me. They were interested. They came around. I I think of myself in that period as syncophantic. I was, you know, I didn't know what they thought of me, really. I thought I was just, they were just nice guys. They were being friendly. I only found out recently that they were really impressed with me. <laughs> I didn't, didn't, it makes me cry when I think of it, because I never knew it. Um, well, you were about 30... You're in your thirties at yeah. that time, so, so you had, your 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 trajectory had from graduation of at USC to then was really, in another direction that was unsatisfactory. Yeah. So you were t- you were leaving that trajectory and assuming another one, starting over again now. They were friends, but I was still doing Santa Monica Place and commercial work that didn't. Paid the bills, I suppose. Yeah, but didn't. Uh, I think that's why I felt always like the outsider. I wasn't. I wasn't pure in that group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the same time, the the, the marriage is breaking up. Yeah. 
So, so the, the 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 relationships that you had in place, you're you're giving up on those relationships as right. where you're turning away from them. Right. And that that moment, you're also embracing psychotherapy, and that was important not not only because of the well, Ed Moses who did that to to me too. I was With had Milton psycho- Wexler. Is that right? Yeah, I had I had gone to a shrink before, uh, a couple of them, different ones about the marriage and they weren't very um, neither neither one of them was very successful but Ed Moses dragged me to Milton and that changed everything both because of the, of him and what he did but also the community of people that were around him that yeah. gave you the kind of emotional support that you needed at the I time I think I think so but he was really clear with me I it's somebody that could that could look you in the eye and tell you what it how he read what you were doing and you had to listen you know it was like the the most compelling thing finally that turned the corner was he had these these groups of 15 people and he would sit twice a week for three hours each and talk to each other and in that 15 people there was a range of of people there was like very famous movie star <laughs> or a great director a great writer or then a lawyer then a schleppy architect or you know it was mixed up and when when you're talking to 15 people and 14 of them turn on you and say hey mister did you see what you just did <laughs> or what you just said <laughs> or what you're doing, you can't dismiss it. That's the brilliance of it. I I couldn't believe it. It happened to me several times, and it was, it just changed my life. Uh, the most incredible thing was before one of those events, I couldn't get up in front of an audience and speak, and after one of those events, I could without notes. <laughs> And how, how did that happen? It just the, pulled the plug. You know, we're so bottled up, more than we realize in a lot of ways, and, and nobody tells you, you know, and then here's, here's a smart-ass group of people, and 14 people tell you this. And they all say the same thing. You can't escape even. You got to listen. So I think that's that was the killer or the, the great thing that Milton did and when it happened he didn't leave me on the floor out to dry He'd take me home with something and say okay <laughs> what do you think about that and, and he he didn't soften the blow but he made it clear that this was this was real not not not, not trivial stuff must have been a frightening time for you yeah it was frightening i mean you had a lot of uh on your plate you had responsibility for a family the family was breaking up you had yeah well he's the one that said to me about the family he said look you've got to commit to one thing or the other he said i'm i'm not gonna continue seeing you you're gonna be wishy-washy about this he made me made me look at it and the reality of it, 
And I think that's what we don't get. We don't get, I mean, people don't tell you how they feel. I mean, you can, you got to learn, learn to read it. You know, I see it here with some of the people that have been here for a long time. It's really hard. You, you build your own little world, right? And, and, and it ain't necessarily so. And, and how the rest of the world is seeing you. And to, so you got to take responsibility for your, your actions, which is you can't blame somebody else. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening. Thank you.